Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spirits and Psychics, Adventures in New Age and the Occult. I'm your host, Morgan Dolan. And I'm Norm. I'm just here to learn. We're here to explore the people and phenomena that have shaped how we understand the unseen world. So, last time we were diving into the premise of theosophy and the early life uh-huh. of its key founder, Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. And one HPB. As we will call her here, HPB. Norm, what can you tell me about theosophy so far? So, it is a very inclusive. I want to say almost scholarly society that seems to be founded on a fairly earnest and egalitarian mindset of there's a lot of truth out there and we probably need to be better at listening to each other and really embrace all these different schools of theology and spiritualism and just all all these attempts to kind of go beyond what is easily understood through our basic senses. And they put a lot of emphasis on practical experience, which I'm still not sure I totally like have a grasp on what they mean by that. But this HPB lady has been ostensibly globetrotting and just meeting all kinds of spiritual leaders and people who are just getting real deep into whatever their respective schools of belief are. And she's kind of trying to cobble together a community and it would seem doing a pretty good job based on how these little theosophy I don't schools or hubs are popping up literally around the world. I think we can call them societies. I made one error last week that I want to correct. Oh. I referenced Rudolf Steiner's book Theosophy and I said it was printed in 1994. That was a much later reprint. Steiner originally wrote mm. it closer to 1910. And oh, wow. I was a little dismissive of how dense the work was. And I wanted to include a <laughs> summary of how he sees the three parts of man that we talked about Oh yeah, through the path of theosophy. And I think it's a quite nice quote. Thus, as human beings, we are citizens of three worlds. In body, we both belong to and perceive the outer world. In soul, we build up our own inner world. And in spirit a third world that is higher than both of the others reveals itself to us. The distinction between spirit and soul is getting a little deep. I wonder if that's the mental, if what we might call mm. it the mental world, you know, your inner world, and yeah. then the soul being that everlasting part of you that gets recreated. So like if it were a Venn diagram, you have the body, which is sort of our mundane existence, and the spirit is that transcendent part of you, and the soul is sort of how you're aware of both somewhere deep inside? I would think of it more as you have your body, which is your physical, everything you inherit from your parents, why your hair is a certain color, etc. And then your inner world being your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, and then the soul Mm -hmm. being that which under a theory of reincarnation goes into the next life and the next life and carries with it through, but you wouldn't carry your mental world with you into a new lifetime. Right. Like you don't reincarnate your memories, but you reincarnate some other energy. I think that would be the argument for the soul, that everlasting Mm. seed. But we talked about how theosophy isn't so much a religion, but a home for the seeker, given that it requires very few tenets that have to be assumed, and there's no renunciation. You don't have to give anything up, including other religions. It also doesn't purport to have any answers, <laughs> which mm. I quite like. We're not here to tell you anything. We're just here to explore. <laughs> yeah, it's an aid for seekers. I like the way you put that. 
And as you said, it's built upon this foundation of comparative study and exploration. And with that in mind, we're going to leave HPB where we had her at the end of the last episode, hustling in Bowery Boys, New York in the early 1870s. <laughs> Just imagine <laughs> HPB in the background of Gangs of New York. Yep. Well, and I, I pulled up pictures of her. Uh, just so I can just kind of look off screen once in a while and be reminded, like, she looks so incredibly serious. How would you describe her to those who haven't Googled her already? I mean, in a word, babushka. There's not a ton of variety in the pictures. It's all portraiture. And in most of them, she's got like the little headscarf kind of thing wrapped around her. She's got very <laughs> round features and very like penetrating eyes. I don't know. It's... It's compelling. So we just imagine her behind Leo DiCaprio and Cameron Diaz in Gangs of New York. <laughs> yeah, just staring down the barrel of the camera. <laughs> so we'll leave her there. And we're going to venture to the other founder of Theosophy, Henry Steele Alcott. Because seeing HPB through his perspective, in my opinion, illuminates both how the path of the seeker can unfold, but also how the Theosophical Society is really as much his legacy as it is hers. And he hmm. is much more seeker-made practitioner versus enlightened authority, which HPB seems to occupy more of that space. Sure. So Henry Steele Alcott was born to Presbyterian parents in mm -hmm. Orange, New Jersey, February 2nd, 1832. So around the same time as our girl HPB was in Russia. And we talked about how the Russian Empire at the time was still in this medieval mindset. There were no mm -hmm. trains. They had serfs and were rejecting modernization on a lot of right. fronts. And what's going on is in Alcott's America at this time is really a country poised between change. They had their own urban-rural conflicts. Mm -hmm. They had an agricultural-industrial-economic divide. There's campaigns for women's rights, temperance. The abolition of slavery was just getting started. Well, really, it's starting to give speed, I should say. Yeah, in the popular imagination. Exactly. We have Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology, and that fired what's considered one of the opening salvos in the warfare between science and religion. Wait, did you say geology? Yeah. Talking about how the earth is older than whenever it could have been made oh, in the Bible. So like anti-textual mm -hmm. from the Bible saying like, oh, the world's 10,000 years old or whatever. And so this is, that's pre-Darwin, sort of these roots of laying the groundwork oh, yeah. for which Darwinism could make sense. And immigration's also bringing religious plurality in a way that wasn't on the scene before. So Alcott's parents are described as happy and pious, which right. I guess we could take with a grain of salt, but he was the eldest of six, so something was working. Mm -hmm. And from a religious perspective, we can kind of safely assume he was in this Calvinist tenets of the reigning theology of the time that we touched on spiritualism, doom and gloom, absolute sovereignty of God, humans are depraved, can't trust them, don't like them. Shame on you for existing, now pray. And... These Calvinist tenets really dominated just the entire Protestant narrative. So mm -hmm. mainstream. And this is exactly what spiritualism was rallying against, right? So despite his parents being Presbyterian, he still was in that milieu that affected all mm -hmm. Protestantism at the time. So when he's 15, he apparently spent one year at NYU before dropping out, which aside from the 15-year-old part might be a familiar refrain for many people. Yeah. <laughs> And he decided to go out west, 
West being the West of New York to the burned over district. And he got into spiritualism because that was where it was happening. He wanted to see the seances, hear the raps. He got onto the scene. And this, one of my resources for this section of our three-part series was called The White Buddha. And I'll include all the full details in the show notes. It was a biography of Henry Steele Alcott. And they went into more of his religious biography, so the history of his beliefs. And they called this transformation, moving from the sort of Calvinist theology to embracing spiritualism, is actually moving into liberal Protestantism. Because spiritualism was this overarching thing that allowed just more liberal reactions to emerge. Mm-hmm. And so his belief starts to shift. He just moves it over here to yeah. liberal Protestantism. <laughs> so he's still devout. He's just not angry all the time. He's still in a Christian theology, but not mm-hmm. having a wider range of understanding the teachings, understanding really mainstream what's going on. and. Yeah. In liberal Protestantism, it emphasizes, and a lot of this crosses over is how we describe spiritualism because they kind of overlapped each other. It emphasizes individual religious experience over corporate rituals, Mm. emphasizes good works over confessionalism. Imagine that. Enlightenment values, such as liberty, equality, human brotherhood, and sisterhood. There's less discrimination between clergy and lay people, and it ejected Calvinist constructions of human depravity and believed that through strenuous effort, human beings could improve not only their own lots in life, but society at large. I like that that's considered a liberal interpretation of something that sounds an awful lot like what Jesus is famously known for preaching, like do good works, be good to each other, even the lowest among you, as opposed to this perfect mirror to medieval serfdom. Well, and also the fact that it required spiritualism, whose main tenet is that you believe that people can communicate from beyond the grave to Mm -hmm. allow all those beliefs to sort of enter mainstream consciousness. Yeah, we have enduring spirits. Maybe we should be kind to each other here. And let's have a seance and talk to them on Saturday night. Yeah, why not? So Alcott got into it even more. So he attended a spiritual circle, which as we've talked in our spiritualism episode, is really people just getting together and being like, hey, I think we could talk to a ghost tonight. Yeah. Ouija boards, maybe a seance, candles, non-satanic pentagrams. So he joined one in Cleveland, hosted by some really affluent dudes. And it sounded like a fraternity for guys with jobs. Mm -hmm. And he had enough direct experiences that he quote, proclaimed himself a convert in 1852. Really? And more interestingly, he got exposed to mesmerism and mesmeric healing. Oh, so I know a little bit about mesmerism. Oh, tell us. I mean, I think it's mostly horse feathers, but it's it's taken from a dude's name. And I think you, you miss that context in the popular usage of the term because we think mesmerize is like hypnotize. But it's like, no, this guy, I think Andrew Mesmer or some ridiculousness like that was just like, I, I can like, you know, animal magnetism. I can like get in your head and I can put you into this state. It sounds an awful lot like hypnosis. And he just like put a little big C copyright next to it with his name on it. And it was just kind of... He was an Austrian physician named Franz Anton Mesmer. Anton, okay. And according to Mesmer, all human beings possessed a subtle body fluid called animal magnetism. Yes. (laughs) And 
sickness resulted from the fluid becoming imbalanced, like one of those old mercury mm-hmm. thermometers. And to heal someone was to rebalance the patient's animal magnetism. And that's done through a series of passes of the healer's arms over the disharmonious area of the patient. So it sounds to me like a lot of laying on hands and faith healing in general. Is this not chi? Like, is he not taking this from Eastern medicine and just rebranding it with pseudoscience terms? Well, here's the thing. I don't quite know. We might have to do a further deep dive because it's really easy to just, ah, mesmerism, throw it on out of, throw it out of hand. But so many other traditions on the outset, you know, acupuncture, what are you doing? You're sticking tiny little needles. Right. So it's, it's in this vein. Yeah, he's just, he's adding a lot more capital words to it and being like, no, no, I've got it figured out. Well, apparently Alcott was, he not only did it for others and got good results, but he was considered a healing medium for his entire life. Alcott? Yeah, he did this in, I guess he was in his 20s, early 20s at this point. And he would do, I'm going to call it faith healing, but these sorts of laying on hands, mesmerism stuff for his whole life and got a especially big reputation when he went to India and modern Sri Lanka, which we'll get to in part three. He brought mesmerism to India and was so compelling that he had a positive reputation there using this rebrand of what already sounds an awful lot like traditional Chinese medicine. I don't know if we can fully say it's a rebrand. I don't have enough info about mesmer, but he could do something and it got enough results that people associated him with getting results of a certain kind. And Mm. it doesn't dominate his narrative, but it really, having this in the background just shows me how you can be exposed to new ideas, new methods, incorporate them, and just keep trucking and keep doing new things. He's basically moonlighting as a mesmerist healer while continuing to be sort of a seeker of deeper and broader spiritual understanding. And a seeker who looks like a normal guy. He ends up moving back to New York in 1853 and becomes a journalist. That's a turn? Okay. Exactly. So you never know who's sitting next to you in your cubicle. Hang on. Is this not like Hearst, yellow journalism, like what we think of as journalism, like Washington Post, breaking stories, checking facts? This is more tabloid journalism, right? So to say he became a journalist doesn't mean what we... He became a writer in a newsroom, he was producing, it sounds like a lot of human interest stories, but mm-hmm. I'll get into it. He was a respected journalist guy. You know, he wasn't okay. a blogger of the era. <laughs> well, I guess that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah. Does he just have the station or is he recognized as a source of credible truth? He's recognized. He had an editor. He went downtown in a suit. Okay. So in 1860, he marries into a conservative Episcopalian family, has one kid and then a second, well, his wife does, and then the Civil War breaks out. Mm. And we don't know a lot about his marriage and family life from his perspective, because according to one main source, they said, Alcott, quote, cultivated expertly the Victorian virtue of unexpressiveness, which historians have recognized as one of the marks of mid-century manliness. That sounds about right. Which... I reflect on now that I see those 1800s portraitures where everyone's frowning. So remind me, how old is he at the outbreak of the Civil War? He's hitting 30. Is that still conscriptable? Well, I'll tell you about his service. Okay. But he's, got a, he's got a family. He's got a life. He's got a good job. He's living in New York. You know, he's hitting that stride. And 
So when the Civil War breaks out, he volunteers for the Union Army, sees action, and then gets sidelined with dysentery. Oh, I'm guessing the mesmerism healing isn't really cut out for dysentery. Guess not. <laughs> he got tasked by the Secretary of War to look into military contractor fraud, a tale as old as time. So his journalistic experience is actually being put to use by the Union military. He was put up for it by his editor. It's how he ended up getting the job. His editor recommended him to the defense secretary. Oh, so he's seen as very credible and good at his job. Yeah, and he was really good at it. He found, I don't have the exact numbers because it was getting a little into the weeds, but he uncovered fraud in several contractors. And then that became his job up until Lincoln got shot. So he's legit following paper trails in an almost legal way. Like he's, fi he's, he's finding documentary evidence of criminal fraud against the US government. The typical overbilling for contracts and yeah. missing money, the stuff that we have nowadays in military contracting world. Forensic accounting, yeah. Except can you imagine just how wrinkly all the papers were with the pen? Yeah. I'm this is the time when I picture the paper as being yellow, even when it's fresh. Like it hasn't even had time to age and it already. And this penmanship that's very slanted and narrow. And yeah. It, everything is italic. Yeah. So after mm. he offers himself for services to investigate Lincoln's death. So he he's, he's still working for the government. This is post-war. This is during Reconstruction. The president is shot. Well, 65. It's right after. Yeah, like right on the cusp of that transition. And he's saying, I'm a pretty good forensic accountant. You should put me on the case of... Well, it's not really a mystery. He kind of jumped down onto the stage and all, but looking into what might be a criminal conspiracy? It was looking into collaborators, specifically in the extent of the conspiracy around what was going on. And so... This is what I found kind of sad. His contribution in this whole hullabaloo is remembered by interrogating a lady named Mary Surratt, or Surratt, and she was the mother of John H. Surratt, suspected of being Booth's co-conspirator. And despite not having a lot of strong evidence, there was not a glove, uh, she was still convicted and hanged. Oh my god. Yeah, that was his, I mean, the summary of his war experience, but he was, you know, on the scene, he was a known entity, he was a big deal. I'm very curious now, not not because I want to write off mesmerism as pure charlatanism, but it does sound like he went all in on journalism after being on the front line and having dysentery. Like, does he go back to the spiritual healing? Well, we'll see in his unfolding. This is because to okay. me, how I related to reading his story thus far, and I was like, oh, this is someone who took Reiki classes when he was in college mm -hmm. or that age, and then had to yeah. go get a real job. And did. And his wife's family was pretty conservative. And so a mm. lot of these interests kind of just went on the back burner. He had little kids. You're living that adulting lifestyle. And I found that really relatable. Yeah. Very modern, actually. So after the war is over, he becomes a lawyer. Wow. What a polyglot. I think it was just easier to make a lateral shift in those days. <laughs> well, and he has been a forensic accountant, effectively. Like, he's not that far off. Interrogated a woman right into the gallows. And so his big thing is fighting against the corruption of Tammany Hall era New York. All right. That's very Gangs of New York. Very much so. I, I think of that scene. Boss Tweed. Yeah. yeah. But so his marriage is on the rocks by this point. And macho guy that he is, he... Mm did not deal with it at all and just like went all in on public reform and his job and returned to his interest in spiritualism and just did not talk to his wife about anything. 
<laughs> so he was deep into it the whole time and just put that whole part of his personality away for the family, staying together for the kids. They hit nine years old and could go work in the coal mine. So then he's like, that's it. You're on your own. I'm going to go back to... They were a bit more well-to-do than the coal mines, but I Basically, they hit teenage years and he was like, all right, time to yeah. publish a work called People from the Other World. Yes. Which was a summary of a lot of his writing at this time. And he goes up to Chittenden, New York to investigate a haunting or some spiritualist type thing that was happening. All right, hang on. I'm, I'm trying to draw back on the spiritualism episode. My understanding is that the spiritualist societies were pretty okey-dokey and even keen on the idea of communication with the other side. Haunting sounds much more negative and less, you can get in touch with anyone who has passed and more. There are bad spirits that want to cause harm and misery for those of us who are still in the mortal realm. Well, the Fox sisters got their start initially by saying the house was haunted and that was producing the raps and the sounds and then they were able to sort of right. take the show on the road so this seems in that vein amityville mm. horror something's going on and a journalist says let me get a ticket and head upstate i will stake my career and reputation as a journalist government contractor and lawyer to go listen to clicks in a house. I don't think it was that high stakes. I can't tell if this was a weekend activity, but I get the sense that it was like, hey, I got to lead on a story. It was big news. It was all over the papers. It, it seems legitimate, like a, a beat to be on, the Ghostbusters beat. True, yeah, at that time, yeah. So he's staying at someone's house, which a bunch of other people at a communal table, when in walks our girl, HPB. Here's the encounter from Gary Lockman's perspective. The first thing he noticed was her red Garibaldi shirt, a military <laughs> tunic in blazing scarlet that had been the height of haute couture for a season or two, and was not yet out of fashion. Amid the sober dress of Vermont farmers, been a sight, as must have been the Mongolian features that may have helped her in her Tibetan forays. After the shirt, Alcott next noticed her hair, a thick mop that stood out from her head silken soft and crinkled to the roots like fleece of a Cotswold ewe. <laughs> then the massive Kalmuk face full of powder, culture, and imperiousness that contrasted sharply with the dour looks of the other guests. This caught his eye as he must have the fur tobacco pouch, the many rings that adorned her delicate fingers, and perhaps lastly but most effectively her eyes. Some said to be blue, sometimes blue-gray or azure, but always magnetic. Alcott mm -hmm. whispered his amazements to his companion, and then made a beeline for a seat opposite her to make a careful, detailed study. So I got to give that description based on the little images I've got pulled up. Like, I'll say an 8 out of 10. The sartorial critique, spot on. The eyes, yes. I don't love the Mongolian features bit. <laughs> that rubs me a little bit the wrong way. <laughs> the imperiousness, yes. If I remember right, she was born to like a type of nobility. And she does seem to carry herself with that like, I'm never out of place, no matter how high the society company is. She's from a noble family. She definitely yeah. has rich girl energy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and she also smoked like a chimney. We cannot forget this detail. <laughs> with 
the the cigarette in between her glittering rings. Yeah. And they became pretty tight. He writes about her in the paper. They get nicknames for each other. Like they become fast friends. And is this a collegial friendship? Because she's married, but not into her husband at all. She was famously asexual. And let's just describe some of this friendship. We'll get into some more juicy details that I included for you. So he's, (laughs) they're just an odd duo, right from jump. Mm -hmm. He's this sober, earnest lawyer, despite having a reputation for like drinking and social clubs and mistresses, like he's, you know, not quite Farmer John-esque, but has a real... 1800s look about him. And she's smoking constantly, intense eyes, wearing ill-fitting clothes, brusque, and very openly into the occult. And they gave each other nicknames. And their nicknames for each other was wild. I really love this. She liked to be called Jack or Mulligan, Latchkey. What? Sometimes old whore. (laughs) I'm sorry, what? Is she self-applying these nicknames? She's like, listen, call me Mulligan. Call me old horse. And he was called Maloney. What? <laughs> I'm sorry. These sound of the time like Irish pejoratives. What is going on? And they became what they called chums. <laughs> so far out. Are they actually friends? They are chums. These these really sound backhanded. They're they're buddies, man. They become tight. Old horse, my good chum. They spend a lot of time together. And she's the one that gets him out of spiritualism. Or off of mainstream spiritualism. Mm. So while she publicly can't denounce spiritualism, she breaks down kind of why mainstream spiritualism doesn't work and convinces him of it and gets it through the paper in that way. So he then publishes kind of a deconstruction of spiritualism through. If I remember part one correctly, she was pretty on board with spiritualism too and would host seances, would she not? Mm -hmm. Especially when she was in Cairo. Yeah. So she's been globetrotting, doing the spiritualist, like, stage show. And then she meets this guy who has made a a secondary career out of faith healing in the spiritualist tradition. And she's like, I actually need you to use your position as a journalist to critique spiritualism and low-key undermine it. That Where's that coming from? I think it went more like this. Oh, spiritualism? Well, that's not the whole story. Let me tell you how Mm. it really works. And here's what she told him. She explained that the idea of beating a medium to the dead was essentially to abdicate free will and responsibility by being an open channel. And the problem is that what is channeled isn't the deceased's full soul or self, but whatever is kind of left behind in the earthly realm or whatever is easily accessible. And That's the lowest vibration left behind and isn't really worthy of being contacted anyway. So I understand it to be that we talked about that kernel of the soul. If that Mm -hmm. takes off, you're leaving, you know, the ectoplasm, everything else. And that's what someone is connecting because by being a medium and an open channel, they can't then can't discern. They're just letting it all come in. So it's almost like if, if the soul is an author, what you're finding are some unpublished scrapbook ideas that probably aren't even worth editing and publishing. Yeah, you're not talking to grandpa, you're getting grandpa's weird Christmas rants. Mm. 
Okay. I mean, that's compelling. But she was still in a position of having to defend spiritualism on the whole. So while they were in Chittenden, which I, I guess was in Vermont, not New York, she went off on this guy who debunked the whole thing and said essentially that other people will dedicate years to doing what they do. And he doesn't have a leg to stand on after just being there for two days. So she kind of tried to have it both ways. It is real, but people are often misappropriating it. Basically, she wanted to get deeper into the topic and say, no, there's more going on here, and yet fire back against people that would easily say, man, this is all BS. You're full of it. Right. You can't, you can't dismiss it wholesale, but embracing it needs to go way beyond the superficial stage show part of it. And so how this played out was Alcott writes exposés on her, and she becomes a minor celebrity, a character in New York. So for chums, that sounds a little opportunistic on her end. So... She further defends other mediums accused of fraud, telling Alcott that one woman who was sometimes right and sometimes reduced to tricks, and that was because the powers weren't easily controlled and the pressures of performing on demand, which isn't the way they're supposed to be used, creates the need to then fake it. So public perceptions create perverse incentives for people who might be authentic mediums but don't have a full grasp or even respect for what's going on. And yeah, he adopted this perspective, wrote extensively about it, and kind of developed this spiritualism reformist angle. Hmm. That's incredibly scholarly of them. And we talked earlier about how Madame Blavatsky had charisma mm -hmm. that drew people to her. And Alcott always maintained that it was a soul-to-soul -soul connection. Mm -hmm. His wife didn't see it that way. <laughs> One can imagine. And she accused him of adultery, albeit not with mm. Bovaski, but like in general. And uh, they divorced in 1874. Yeah. She probably wasn't wrong. He wasn't getting it from Blavatsky, so he just kind of got what he could. And her charisma was so strong that like some guy, originally from Georgia, the country, named Michael Bettinelli, he read one of Alcott's articles. I think he was in Pennsylvania, oh, we call it, Philadelphia at the time. And he was so into her that he begs Alcott to set them up. I mean, no, right? <laughs> you gotta say no to this dude. Well, he clearly wasn't well-versed in the arts of wingmanship because uh, <laughs> Alcott puts him through. Bettinelli proposes marriages, writes letters, comes to New York. Blavatsky totally snubs him. Yeah. So she apparently thought Nikifor was dead, but kind of used it like, oh, I might still be married. He wasn't dead. So keep that in the background for this next bit. Uh, Bettinelli threatens to commit suicide. And Alcott says, basically, like, what are you doing with this guy? He regrets his decision to put them in touch. And Plavatsky marries him. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, she said, as long as there was absolutely no sex. She tries to make this clear to him. She decides to marry him. I assume because he was loaded, he must have had money. Rich stalker threatened suicide, enters polyamorous relationship with married spiritualist guru. It's an 1800s Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> I think that might be a little generous. <laughs> well, he Benelli clearly thought he could win her over on the sex point, and uh, she left him a few months into the whole deal. Yeah. <laughs> The only condition is we're not going to bump uglies. And he's like, okay, <laughs> wink. Yeah, so this is that's going on again in the background of this whole thing. The whole thing being their friendship this time in New York. Yeah. One of the things that HPB's tutoring him in is her perspective on the occult. He's sort of coming to kneel at her feet and learn from her. 
And let's talk about the masters and how Olcott sees the masters. What do you remember about the masters? Capital M masters. Well, in the theosophical society, they're very anti-hierarchical, which even though they embrace religion, they embrace, they they kind of reject that highly hierarchical part of organized religion. Um, I'm thinking mostly in terms of the church, but I think you have like authoritative leaders in most religions. And they're saying, no, we're really just learning from one another. But there are masters who are sort of more experienced or further in their journey of seeking knowledge. So it's sort of masters in the academic sense rather than in a master and commander kind of way, I guess. So they're presented as real people, not spirits. Right. Real people who have absorbed all the teachings. And from mm -hmm. we know from part one, these masters appeared, according to HBB, appeared in her own life at various points and instructed her and illuminated her on the path. She calls them a race of beings, adepts, masters, mahatmas, and frames them as members of a secret occult brotherhood who've been entrusted throughout the ages with the task of conserving and propagating the ancient wisdom. So like prophets, rather. I think really secret society, like um, that place Batman went to. Oh, the League of Shadows. But they're, they're not people people. They're entities, like angelic masons or something. I definitely get the sense that they're they're more real person oh. than what we might think of as angelic figure, but they're not flesh and blood. They're more like a bodhisattva or like a living saint is the vibe I, I get from reading all this stuff. Real enough that a real person, they'd appear like a real person to you, but mm. they are enlightened. Right. So the, they have some type of transcendence but it's through their accumulated knowledge. And this is really key, though, to get into this distance, because I think the modern flavor of how we understand uh, enlightenment in the mm. New Age scene is with this idea of energy, ephemeric, amorphous, angelic energy that you can contact, mm. but could also appear to you, but not so much physical guy standing in your doorway. That seems to have right. fallen out of fashion. But that type of materialism, that type of real hold out and you can grab it, realness was very, the, it was the thing of this time period. Well, it sounds appealing. Yeah. So just like how in our human design episode, we talked about how incorporating DNA was very of the moment. Right. Right. I get the sense that real something made manifest is of the moment in the late 1800s in terms of what people accept to believe. So it's just a pragmatic attempt to blend this sort of emerging school of thought with what is going to be most appealing to people at the time. Like, I need it to be real. Whether it was done consciously or unconsciously, that seems to be the thing. Because remember, in these spiritualism performances, tricks that we would now identify as complete stage magic were hugely convincing. I mean, Sir Arthur Conan right. Doyle like bet the farm on the fact that I think he saw someone like burp ectoplasm and it was probably a scarf right. coming out of the mouth. Right. So she, according to Blavatsky or according to Alcott, who said Blavatsky told him this, mm -hmm. was that the masters had sent her to America and charged her with combating the skepticism of materialists. So the debunkers mm -hmm. with the philosophical naivete of the spiritualists. And the goal was to affirm the reality of spiritual phenomenon, but add a complexity 
absent from the prevailing spirituals narrative. That is ambitiously nuanced. As is I assuming that or presenting yourself as being sent by a larger organization. Right. You're on a mission that's bigger than yourself. But that adds gravitas. Gives you a resume. That's a resume builder, baby. Well, it's, it sounds like HBB is also seeing Alcott as sort of a quasi-disciple. Like, I am on a higher mission and you are going to be part of it. Their names are linked for a reason. Right. All right. So here's an example of how the so-called masters showed up in Alcott's life and really reeled him in. So we talked about in spiritualism, the process through which people sort of got converted. And mm -hmm. I think of this in that same tradition. You go from intellectually knowing something to then crossing over and being like, oh, yeah. He starts getting letters. Go on. Fancy envelopes written in French. <laughs> <laughs> what could be more compelling? <laughs> With addresses that weren't his house. What? He's receiving letters that aren't addressed to him? They're addressed to him, but not his house. All right. And some are addressed to Kara Blavatsky, even though she rarely visited his office. So it would be like you getting mail for me or me getting mail that says it's Kara of Norm when we don't live close to each other. Right. And it's on proper stationery with symbols and sayings, like that it was the Brotherhood of Luxor addressing him with Brother Neophyte, he who seeks us, finds us, try, rest thy mind, banish all fool doubt, keep watch over our faithful soldiers. Sister Helene is as valiant, trustworthy servant. Have faith, and she will lead thee to the golden gate of truth. <laughs> this is baffling layers. They wrote of other masters by name who were watching over them. Other letters had explicit instructions like help Levatsky divorce that Georgian guy and maybe borrow money from your ex-in-laws. <laughs> what? This is some like Nigerian prince stuff. <laughs> he was in. This like brought him, helped really bring him into the fold of like, these guys are really out there. So they name drop his chum, the old horse, and have a really nice stationery. And he's just like, yes, I'm calling in favors. I'm going to help my buddy get divorced. We're, we're doing this to the moon, baby. So they start an underwhelming secret society called the Miracle Club, which was short-lived, and you'll see why. I already have a hunch. And so it took place kind of in their living room. And yep. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay. During a lecture, so they brought in a guy to give a lecture to their little club, and the lecture was called The Lost Canon of Proportion of the Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans. And Alcott gets an idea that wouldn't it be a thing to start a society that studied this sorts of thing? He writes it in paper, like on, like writing notes, like he's in class, and he hands it to his buddy, a young guy named William Judge Kwan or Quan Judge, young immigrant, young lawyer. And that guy nods, hands the paper next to him to HPB, who nods. And at the end of the lecture, but I like to imagine that's in the middle of it, he stands mm -hmm. up and announces they're opening a new group. <laughs> and a week later, <laughs> it is christened the Theosophical Society, September 13th, 1875. So it wasn't HPB who founded it. She just kind of put all these people together, gathered them all with her 
steely eyes and got them passing notes in a lecture held in a living room where these these credulous fellows were just like, bro, what if this, but bigger? What if we just studied this stuff and none of what we have on the docket for next meeting? And they all had positions in, you know, of director and so on. HPB <laughs> was not, she knew she was talent and yeah. did not take any administrative heavy administrative duties. That was all Akat's place. He loved admin. Mm -hmm. Clearly, he's made a career out of it. And yeah, so it was hard to pin down. We've talked about that. Theosophy is a little hard to say, what is it? And even at the time, William Judge said, quote, the strength of theosophy lies in the fact that it is not to be defined. It's just a bunch of dudes hanging out, exchanging ideas, filling lecture halls. Passing notes, making up cute nicknames for each other. So quick recap, here are the three main objectives that mm. are sort of three things you have to actually sign up for when you join the Theosophical Society. To form the nucleus of a universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color. The study of ancient and modern religions, philosophies, and sciences, and the demonstration of the importance of such study and the investigation of the unexplained laws of nature and the psychical powers latent in man. Now, this is right after the Civil War. Is it transgressive for them to be like, we are anti-prejudicial. We're just a bunch of bros hanging out, trying to figure out the meaning of life. Like the, the second two, I, I can kind of see just being inoffensive and enticing to people, especially if they have any kind of curiosity about these matters. But it does kind of make me wonder, like, we don't have integrated schools for the better part of a century from when this is happening. It's 1875. Yeah. And they're just like, anybody can join. Does anybody join? Do they actually have the representation to match this creed? Well, get into this in a moment. But I think that <laughs> the gender divide was the real key here because secret society culture at the time no girls allowed. Mm. And so yeah. Blavatsky clearly wanted in. I also think the race component as it was understood was partially because Blavatsky is coming from a multi-ethnic society, but right. still in her upper crust, acknowledging that, that ideas can come from the East. And as such, you have to acknowledge that it's open to, to other races in that way, because the ideas sort of come with it. It's It would be very difficult to explore, I think, Hinduism and Buddhism to the level that they wanted to, or at least to talk about the ideas, and maintain a strict color line. Well, that sounds a lot like race as it's conceived today. But if we're thinking back then, racism would be like immigrant groups. You know what I mean? It wouldn't just be skin color. It would be like the Irish, the Italians. Well, one of the founders, William Judge, he was an Irish immigrant. There you go. So that seems to be at least flexible at this time. But it, it sounds the way you just described it, like they're more, eh, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. Not absolutely Indian immigrants can join. Absolutely Chinese immigrants can get in on this and bring with them their wisdom. Well, I think the biggest thing that both became an issue within the Theosophical Society and in terms of the outward looking worldview was social class. 
Mm. And I'll get into that right here. So it was formed literally within the salon culture. Right. So in the French tradition, everyone hangs out and talks about deep things. Mm -hmm. And the religious biography of Alcott, the White Buddha, they referenced earlier, they described the Theosophical Society as Alcott's attempt to institutionalize Blavatsky's charisma. And so he did a ton of work for her. He was editing her crazy book, which I'll get into. He's doing so much admin. He's sort of building this whole thing, both for his own interest, but also with her as this key jewel of understanding. And they had two competing views about what it was going to be. He wanted to gentrify the spiritualist tradition. He wanted to have like a board of directors, how we make people talk about it, make it a really honestly what it's like today. Mm. But he's also a career bureaucrat. He's into that. Exactly. He likes the accountability and the paper trail and all that. He wanted to publish findings, have people, the directors at the helm, probably have lectures that people can join. He wanted to make a real thing of it. Is he trying to found like a university? I I think it's honestly what we saw when we looked at the Theosophical Society in America, how it was in truly what looks like a high school, but it had right. lectures, they have papers, you have resources, a, a very fancy community center. So almost like uh, somewhere like a consultancy. Like I'm, I, a lot of what you're describing sounds like the foundation of a religion, but then sometimes it sounds so bureaucratic and academic, but they don't seem to be trying to create a credentialing system. It's a society. In many ways, and we'll look at them more closely in the next episode, the Society for Psychical Research. Okay. That was in charge of disproving all the mediums and publishing. They still work today. I'll tell you all about it next time. But I, I truly thought we were just going to go after one person's just like school of charisma. And it's just exploded like safety glass, just a spider web of connections. Meanwhile, Blavatsky wants to aristocratize it. So... Alcott wants to make it this, they use the word gentrify, and that's a pretty good word mm. for it. And she wants to have a small coterie of people who she's initiated and are then disseminating her work. She doesn't want to interface with a lot of people. She wants to sort of share her thoughts mm-hmm. and step back. She. This is the most cult leader-y, I think she presents herself. Yeah. But she doesn't have the agenda of a cult leader. Because she doesn't want to be seen as the ultimate figurehead, but she wants that influence. She wants to be behind the scenes or at the helm, sort of. She wants to be there. This strikes me almost more of a cultural difference than truly a difference in vision. She's a Russian noble. Mm-hmm. And she wants to maintain, keep doing that. She doesn't see any reason to change it and to keep doing that in this new way. So much like how... Her great grandfather before her, who had that awesome occult library, he had his buddies, they had their secret society. She wants to have that. And everyone else takes the teachings as they trickle down. Right. She basically wants a really nice room or even a really nice mansion. And she has the skeleton key. She doesn't have to preside. She doesn't have to maintain, but she can come and go as she pleases at any time. Yeah, she's this Russian noble. He's a genteel Manhattan society guy. And I mean, spoiler alert, he his version won. It's kind of mm-hmm. what theosophy is today. But with that vision of the mansion, her role, who do you think was really influenced by Blavatsky and by theosophy? 
I mean, this sounds very Freemasony. It's influenced by Freemasons, but who do you think led a cult that was really influenced by Theosophy? I have a few ideas. It's in the 70s. That's your hint. Oh, in the 1970s? Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. Very influenced no. by all these ideas and this structure. Heaven's Gate, baby. Oh! Oh. Marshall Applewhite and his co-founder, who they were also in kind of this platonic, asexual, soul-to-soul -soul connection, they were really influenced by theosophy. But that was like explicitly a cult. Yeah, but they were in a mansion. It was, they were secluded for so long. This was not a cult where people went in and out. This was the group for years. Ooh. So it's... That's a very selective borrowing of ideas, though, right? It's definitely a mix. And if we go into it, we'll, there's more yeah. depth. But her, she was a stated source. Ugh. And the end of Heaven's Gate, which is what everyone remembers, they killed themselves right. in a mansion in San Diego, is in a way the terrible end of this idea of having the head idea person, their inner circle disseminating ideas versus this genteel... You know, sharing directors, talking about it, vision that Alcott has. I don't have a cult on hand that I can compare that vision to, but I'll think on it and let you know. I mean, this this does sound an awful lot like Christianity in the sense that, like, Jesus was a Jew, right? A practicing Jew, and he was trying to disseminate compatible but novel ideas that were very egalitarian. He had a cadre of followers and wasn't trying to found a religion by all accounts. And yet, that's sort of what his disciples ended up doing with their collected letters and musings and documentary of what this one charismatic thought leader did. Like, that to me seems like a very direct parallel. I don't think that that's what HPB was trying to parallel, but the effect certainly looks that way. Well, let's talk about some other effects they or rather change they created in their time. Mm -hmm. So they're referring to themselves as chums. <laughs> right. They're thick as thieves. And they helped vault the process of cremation into greater public acceptance. What? No. Yes. Someone in their extended cohort dies and asks that a theosophic rite be done for his burial. And whether he requested it or it was decided on, I can't tell. But... He just, they decide on cremation. Now, a cremation society at this time exists in New York, but they'd not burned a single body. And so when they're approached by Alcott, they don't want anything to do with it. They do not want to be associated with the occult, these crazy religious spiritualist ideas, so they refuse it. So Alcott devises a ceremony at the Masonic Temple in New York, apparently with this dead guy's body just packed in clay to preserve it because they could not burn it in a timely manner. And he described God in theosophical terms, he being Alcott, as an uncaused caused. And a Methodist preacher, I can't, I think it was there. He takes offense and shouts, that's a lie. And there's a whole kerfuffle. There's bad press and... Eventually, the guy's body gets burned in a private crematorium by this Dr. Francis Lemoyne because he built his own crematorium out in Washington, Pennsylvania, and it got reported on everywhere. That is a baffling, just 
Neapolitan of randomness. And it was reported everywhere because cremation was considered a heathen practice. But at the end of the day, the Theosophical Society and this whole thing caused it to be more widely accepted. Like it went down the hill after that. People started doing it. There was a society for cremation that didn't actually burn bodies. They made a little clay mummy tomb for their buddy while they figured out how to burn his body. Couldn't get anyone on board, committed some form of Methodist apostasy, ran off to meet a doctor who did have his own crematorium, just a hobbyist, nuked whatever was left in this weird clay pot. It made national news and people were like, you know what? That sounds dope. This should be normal. I mean, that's why I include these things, just for you. <laughs> this is so far out. So it's going to get more far out because I'm going to describe to you their apartment they shared. Wait, Alcott and HBB. Old Horse? <laughs> their, their sexless little pad? So they move again to an apartment in New York that the press called the Lamasary. The what? Lamasary, referring to Tibetan Buddhist priests. Ah, I see. They call it the Lamasary, and it becomes the most famous intellectual salon in New York. Like French salon. Like French ideas, people come and you talk about things. It's like a club. Like a private residence, but social club. Come have your coffee, whatever. Lachman describes it as where Christians, Jews, and heathens met with aristocrats, intellectuals, and bohemians, as well as doctors, lawyers, and to discuss every ma imaginable subject on earth, in the heavens above the earth, and in the profoundest depths below, with a curious mix of wit and philosophy. And now, let me describe this apartment to you. Yes. Just so you can have an image. Oh, yes. Japanese cabinets, a Swiss cuckoo clock, a stuffed lioness head that greeted visitors as they entered the apartment, wreathed in incense and tobacco smoke, an upright piano, supported images of the Buddha and other spiritual teachers, and a gray stuffed owl leered eerily from the bookcase. Long, narrow mirrors are in the corners of the rooms. Stuffed monkeys hung from the walls, as did toy lizards. Potted palm fronds reached the ceiling. A stuffed bat hangs in a doorway. A stuffed crocodile hangs over another. The dining room wall featured a jungle tapestry, complete with snake, a tiger, an elephant, surrounded by foliage, another snake, curled around the mantelpiece mirror, and the most famous objet d'art, however, was the celebrated stuffed baboon. This Alcott dressed... He costumes the baboon. This Alcott dressed in a collar, white cravat, and a pair of glasses, and under one of its arms, he shoved the manuscript of a lecture on Darwin's Origin of Species. I feel like I just got a tour of Jack White's house. <laughs> and uh, she also had what was described as a collection of monkeys and canaries that would fly room to room. So why all the taxidermy? It was their image. It, they were into it. This is their vibe made manifest. Oh my god. I... This is so psychedelic. Like, this is so far out. And and this description is coming from sort of an outsider let in. Like all this talk of, oh, they're down with the heathen religions. It makes it sound like they're not real seekers of knowledge. They're just sort of cheekily being like, oh my, look at this religion. What's that little baboon have to say? Evolution? Mm -hmm. 
I can just see HPV just in the corner of this place smoking. People come yeah. and then she looks at him and is like, let me tell you something. This is unbelievable. So it's here in the Lamas area that she's recorded to be doing stuff that proves she's a mage. This is kind of the time where people start, including Alcott, to see things that make them believe there's something about her. She's hooked in. Yeah, when you're surrounded by a taxidermy jungle. This is actual real thing. So people report that objects move unaided. So a silver spoon that penetrated two walls to reach her hand. She materialized bottles of paint, drew a letter from an unopened envelope, and then duplicated it, created the hallucination of one of her rings. Oh, pardon me. Oh, the duplication, pardon me, created the duplication of one of her rings, gave it to someone. Demonstrations of telepathy, materializing pencils, commanding the elementals, whatever that is, mesmeric hallucinations, creating an image or writing appears on blank paper in front of her, and instances of clairvoyance, her reading so-called astral light or Akashic records, and many of the displays being accompanied by astral bells or pings around the room. So there's just a cacophony of things falling over while a bunch of upper crust New Yorkers trip balls in this weird taxidermy museum of horrors filled with a combination of her chain tobacco smoke and incense. And they're just like, Oh, she's for real. This is the most magic woman I've ever seen. Sounds like a mutual friend's college dorm. Right? I think I went to a party there once. And all the while, she's working on her big work, Isis Unveiled. I need you to explain more. So she starts doing the salon thing less and less because it seems trivial. And this includes any mm. instances of, we would call them magic, but any of these things that kind of are saintly... I don't want to use the word tricks, but anything that would make someone go, whoa, you really have magic. You brought that cup right. in here. And she's saying, trivial, don't want to do it, must focus on the work. And I think this is really interesting because in Autobiography of a Yogi, uh, Yogananda talks about saints who did phenomena like this in this era in India. So showmanship. And he talks about it from firsthand experience. I think one of his was the perfume saint who would be able to conjure any smell sort of beneath your nostrils. And these things were thought of as little th trivial things because by being so, by having such a deep understanding of deeper truths and the function of the universe, performing things like this was easy and trivial just for, just for show. So this sounds like a philosophy major who minors in theater, theatrics or something like magic so that they can like get you to sit through their insufferable philosophy lectures by doing card tricks and pulling scarves out. Like instead of entertaining patter, they're like, what if God was all of us? Is this your card? Well, I mean, I don't know because these living saints, that's a long tradition. There are still living saints out there. And I wouldn't be surprised if people have experiences of seeing stuff like this now. It's I mean, the references I have are from 100 years ago. But while it's easy to immediately say, this is stage magic, it's also a little part of me goes, is it? I don't know. Well, it's even the people performing these acts are saying, I mean, this is, if you think this is great, wait until you see my book. <laughs> Copies of which will be available for purchase on your way out of the lamasarium or whatever i suppose that's fair because i just want to hold one kernel that like maybe there's something out there but uh anyway so she here's the thing she had 
insane output when it came to writing. Mm -hmm. She would write stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And she was apparently terrible at grammar. <laughs> she was apparently terrible at grammar and sentence structure, but it was wild. The things that she could write in these huge verbatim quotations from an astounding variety of sources that she did not have on hand. And this comes from Alcott that he would then look some of these up and it would take a while to find an original text and they would be spot on. Well, you did say that she has something like almost photographic memory, right? Like, mm -hmm. even if she's not maybe as eloquent as she would like to be, she does have some recall. So I won't name all the sources, even though I had initially had a list of them because they're kind of meaningless, but it was deeply impressive to Alcott then. And some of the tomes now have sort of fallen out of, I guess, favor in terms of how much they're referenced, but mm. there was a lot there. And so all these things that she could pull out from memory definitely seem to be an edict memory. And casually it's referred to as photographic memory. But right. Gary Lachman, he included a description of it and linking it to a condition called hypnagogia, hypnagogia, which is sharply detailed images that appear right before you sleep. It's a condition. I guess before mm. the instance of sleep, you can get just a highly detailed image appear to you, I, I suppose. But this phenomenon is linked to this memory aspect because it's this realm of dual consciousness. So whatever is being recalled can sort of appear. And it was written that she would squint her eyes and lean forward and then just mm -hmm. write it all down. And Tesla, Nikola Tesla also had this type of memory, but she, she called it astral reading, <laughs> reading books on the did. astral plane. <laughs> and um, it also reminds me that you know, scientific explanation does not preclude it from also being considered a mystical ability. So even if she just had this funky thing that allowed her to remember, you know, these crazy works of text she read, it's pretty, that was pretty cool. I'm, I'm no neurologist, but I think there is scientific credibility to this in that a lot of what your brain is doing is sensory filtering to try to ignore familiar stimuli to keep you focused on potential threats. And I know that when you go to sleep, your brain is kind of filtering through passively absorbed and ignored information be like, was there something there? Do I need to remember this? Like, are there new patterns that I can kind of organize for future recall? And also, I believe every time you recall a memory as an ordinary person, you're adding subjectivity to it because you're you're projecting new memories and patterns on top of it. So it is a form of like a brain disorder to objectively recall information at will because your brain isn't properly filtering it and only looking for patterns and associations, which has its applications if you're theatrical and charismatic, but could be also classified as almost a handicap. Well, it reminds me a bit about a book we read in my anthropology undergrad called The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, exploring this idea of how, in that example, the Hmong culture uh, associates mm. epilepsy as a precursor to being a shaman, to shamanic ability, and they're not the only right. ones who do. And so the book chronicled the culture clash of the American medical system and sort of the community's use for way of dealing with it. And... Also, another example of what could be considered a handicap is mm -hmm. wanted by the mystical arts in some way. And you can just see her, though. Our girl is mm -hmm. smoking, writing, 
Alcott next to her, trying to edit these massive sentences, James Joyce style. Yeah. And get this, the book's a hit. Of course it is. Overnight success. Sold out of its first run in like a week. Well, when you've got all the like bow-tied and mustachioed types going to this weird gymnasium on the weekend and saying, we've got a genius, we've got a mage, and then she writes a book and it's like, I get it. Do you get it? It's deep. Like you, you can kind of see how just peer pressure would make it a, a big seller. So she turns down this kingly advance. They wanted to make her write a second one, and she says no. <laughs> I wrote what I, I wrote what I wanted to write. I set out to do it, and the book itself is focused mostly on Western esoteric traditions more than you'd expect, and the occult. <laughs> the main idea being how all religions stem from a common origin, something that doesn't sound really novel now, but was then, and. In this book, shots are fired over spiritualism. She claims that the entities that mediums channel aren't really spirits, as we previously mentioned, but also that, quote, only weak, sick minds could become mediums, as any healthy mind would naturally prevent these lower entities from dominating it. And lots of mediums didn't like that. Imagine. Though oddly, anecdotally, many famous mediums were fragile in health. You don't see a lot of big, burly dudes contacting the dead. Yeah. Is there anybody here who wants to uh, <laughs> make contact? Yeah. And so also, despite saying that all religions are coming from the same source, she was real hard on Christians and Catholicism and argued that biblical teachings and Christian rituals are but crude copies of more ancient practices. She saw Christianity as having a, quote, murderous fanaticism, and she was really anti-clerical, which makes sense with, and how she saw the Vatican as, quote, whose despotic pretensions have become hateful to the greater portion of enlightened Christendom. Hard to fault these observations, especially in light of the hundred years since this book came out. And the conspiratorial Jesuits, oh. who have, quote, done more moral harm in this world than all the fiendish armies of the mythical Satan. Okay. Hot take. Hot take on the Jesuits. <laughs> yeah. Golly. Yeah, so despite being, as I said, really into Western hermetic and esoteric thought, Western woo-woo, if you will, mm -hmm. the original, uh, it does elevate some Eastern ideas and puts Christianity, which remember, is the dominant Western religion in America at the time, down at the bottom. And she put down Calvinism, hardline views, and kind of throws the whole tradition away. And she and Alcott were really known for not being able to tolerate or even handle conservative Christians in their circle. Yeah. So the real through line here seems to be that she really doesn't like hierarchical social structures, and she hates locked doors in the social sense. Yeah, she wants to go everywhere. Yeah. And she doesn't need to be everywhere all the time. She just wants to know that she could. And, you know, liberal Protestantism and these hardline, these more conservative ideas are really oil and water, you know, pushing each other away. And this isn't a religious podcast. I really want to state that. Yeah. But the ideas carry over into this architecture of theosophy that Yes, it's exploring and comparing. And for all it does, saying these different creeds, different takes and different sides is dismissive of certain takes and certain sides. Mm -hmm. So it in some ways wants to have it always and doesn't because yes, you want to put the umbrella out to explore everything. And yet in doing so must dismiss some things. 
which right. sort of goes against their principal creed. You don't need to renounce any of your Christian beliefs if you want to join the Theosophical Society. I'm sure many people have written about that in modern in modern time, but they were not into Calvinists coming to their door. Well, it is cherry picking, but it's because, well, the way that they would tell it, it seems to be because we're we're trying to seek the deeper truth that's compromised kind of in the retelling, the, the phone game that comes from people trying to share their enlightenment. But ultimately, it, it sounds like they're trying to cherry pick the bigger ideas away again from the hierarchical structure of you know any any religion that the effect of is social oppression of some form i also imagine that there is a lot of you just don't get it right, right. which is infuriatingly compelling because you know you can be on the path that also implies you can be mm -hmm. off the path you can get it or don't get it right and wrong and for all the discussion of unity and being heavily influenced by Buddhist thought, there it strikes me as duality being the only way to go. And mm. I think part of that through how they unfolded it is that you have this personal experience of what resonates or what seems to make sense to be able to take it forward. And in Blavatsky's real harsh take on Christianity is showing that, or maybe not showing so much as expressing, that these ideas sort of lead to a dead-end structure that isn't actually mm. getting where I want to go. I mean, she's kind of playing that same game. If if we think of the Renaissance as being a period of enlightenment focused on Christianity, she's playing the greatest hits. She's she's created a secret society that's very well known and it's founded on principles of basically inside jokes and references that you can't just say you get. You have to be part of it to get it, which isn't that different from you know, missionaries going to South America and being like, listen, heathens, we've got it figured out, join or die. Like she's doing a less oppressive version of the same thing. And one of the things they made clear in discussing these hardline Calvinists with liberal Protestantism is that they both wanted to pull people to their side. Neither were mm -hmm. sort of extending the olive branch to saying, well, you can keep that and come over here. And in right. theory, theosophy says you can but it seems like just another further down the spectrum pulling people along. And so the intellectual criticism that they're also fighting against in this time versus the religious criticism is evolution and scientific materialism. Mm -hmm. Her counter to this is that it's not just the body of man that evolves, but his soul, spiritual, and psyche also evolves. And she's credited as being the first in the Western world to break into this type of philosophy. I'm the first person to say it's not just the body that evolves in the Darwinist tradition, but everything else is also going from life to life. Well, the, the sort of triad principles are also not a rejection of science. If anything, it's a recognition of the limitations of scientific materialism. Like there are things we are experiencing that can't be fully measured in physical terms. What it does is it's taking the chance element out of evolution as something that doesn't mm. just happen, but that is guided by a higher intelligence of the spirit or the soul that's affecting how evolution plays out in the universe. Right. So it can't be fully explained by being like, oh, these frogs evolved this way because of a single physical input. It's like, no, there's a bigger plan or larger forces at work. Or just they happen to be here and it just happened. The chaos of the universe is sort of stripped away. Mm. And instead, adding an aspect of divinity. Which seems like it would be very compelling to people who don't like being shamed by their pastor, but aren't totally on board with the principles of evolution if they don't include God explicitly. Yeah. And so this 
mass, it's a massive book and it is recommended to not be read cover to cover. There are books telling you how to read the book. It's a real read it in chunks, just dive in, mm -hmm. dip in, dip out sort of book. But unfortunately, the Theosophical Society did not really profit from it, nor did they get any new members or not as many as they hoped for. I thought this was a bestseller. It was. I, I couldn't figure out what happened to all the money or if it just got eaten up by expenses or by public, who knows? Could be anything in this mm. time, but didn't lead to enough money to make the Theosophical Society a running venture. If only they had a high-ranking forensic accountant who could look into that <laughs> and figure out where all the money is going. <laughs> well, they started to look, HPB started to look for a place to kind of shift her operations. Mm -hmm. And by the summer of 1878, five years after she got to New York, she finally gets her divorce from that Georgian guy. And she also becomes an American citizen. First Russian huh. woman to do so. Wait, really? Yeah, to naturalize. Huh. And there's an argument that having an American passport would make it easier for her to travel the world and kind of remove her from European politics that are playing mm. out in the region. Fair. Also, D.D. Holm, we we mentioned his name briefly in the spiritualism episode. He's firing back at her and Alcott calling them frauds and... It's a little tenser than I think she would have hoped for. Sure. And so she starts to get letters, either gets letters or corresponds. Either way, here's that there's a theosophical community in India, and that's where they're going to go. She is learning of this community. In India. That is ostensibly based on the one that she and her, her buddy Magoo, or whatever she called him, so they didn't actively try to seed this around the world. It was taking off. I am not totally clear on how they hooked up. But somehow mm. they get a ping that like, it's happening over there enough that they decide to move. And she and Alcott? Yeah. And he has like, oh, an ex-wife, two teenagers or young adults. I mean, and it was a bit of a hard sell. There were a couple more run-ins with the masters. Like he has to get over a hump to go to India with her. And here's another thing to consider. She's not doing so great health-wise. She's a big lady. Oh. She's eating a diet of buttered eggs. She's got folds of flesh on her wrists and ankles. Called it dropsy at the time. Now it's called edema. Her kidneys mm. are in terrible shape. And she was really not into New York winter. Fair. So after he has a couple more run-ins with the masters, this becomes a growing concern. He ends up getting some sort of open-ended job title as U.S. Trade Representative and a letter of introduction from Rutherford B. Hayes, president. <laughs> so he so he's of... been maintaining ties with the federal government yeah, this whole time. He's still a lawyer. So he gets, he, I, I don't know how to give what modern equivalent of this, but he becomes, he sort of says, here I am, I'm a real dude. I'm of a certain, I mean, it's a letter from the president saying who he is. Yeah. I serve at the pleasure of the president. He makes some provisions for his kids and making sure his alimony gets paid, has that open-ended job, and they're apparently running back and forth up until the day they leave, which I can relate to. And December 19th, 1878, they take off. They set sail for India. Leaving all those monkeys back at that apartment. Oh, the baboon. And bam, that's where we are for part three. All right, none of this went the way I thought it was going to. Like, the way I remember it is, she's pretty open-minded. 
She's a pretty ardent feminist, although the vocabulary isn't like fully developed for the time. She's into ideas. She's very charismatic, but she's going to be proven a fraud. That happens in India, and that's that's coming. Oh, you can see, though, man. why I had to put a part three, because there was just so much here, and we're already at time. So imagine if we had to go another leg. I haven't even gotten to India yet. It's like looking at the cover of Sgt. Pepper's, and it's just like, oh my god, there's so much here, and I know some of these celebrities, and is that them in wax? What is going on? Cremating a body in the background. <laughs> Having a cremation society that doesn't actually burn bodies saying, no, no, we won't burn this body. We're looking to start, but not this one. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you get it. Jesus. So, yeah, what do you make so far of Alcott and Blavatsky, this gruesome twosome? I mean, I really kind of dig the idea that they're just sexless chums. (laughs) I am way off the map when it comes to their nicknames for each other. (laughs) They sound extremely not flattering. Like, that is what I would expect from, like, people who don't actually like each other but correspond for some reason, like respectful rivals or something. But nah, they opened up shop, found a very accomplished taxidermist or two, and started having really trippy fancy parties for their friends and colleagues. Built, yeah, a very James Joycean literary empire somehow pissed all the money from that away which again seems like an incredible oversight for a guy who made his federal career doing the exact opposite for the u.s army or the union army just a bundle of contradictions and loose ends i really need a mini series of this like this is wild and this is real life yeah this happened to the best of our retelling of it (laughs) right right and next episode, they go off to India. We'll describe the vibe in India, the fraud, and the exposure of it, and also her last work before her death, Secret Doctrine. I'm still baffled by the motives here because they seem to not be raking in cash. They don't really seem to be, even though they're raiding, they're, they're basically penning a cult leader handbook. They're not actually following it that zealously to become, you know, central figures of major influence and affluence. They don't, they're, they're proximate to political power, obviously with their presidential letter of introduction, but they don't seem to be leveraging it to a point of abuse. There's no malicious, there's no maliciousness, I think, in this story in terms of the cult leader spectrum of trying to get people and ideas and controlling it that way, which is very interesting. I look at her though, in terms of how she handles money, as living like a noble and continuing yeah. that. She's living comfortably, but it's not like ostentatious displays of wealth. You know, it's not Xanadu. Yeah. They're not hosting orgies. She's pulling spoons through the wall or something. And they're not anti-religious, but they are anti-hyper-organized, like zealous religion. And they definitely don't like institutions of power under a facade of religious enlightenment. Like, they they seem very against the concept of enlightenment coming with social power or political power. And yet they're so aggressively recruiting people and enamoring, I don't want to say followers, because that's not quite what they seem to be doing, but I just, it's really hard to ascribe 
a typical motive to any of this behavior? I, I don't know. That's why we're covering them in such detail because it, in some ways, when I look at Alcott, it's the life of a seeker. There are people throughout history mm. that when you look at them on the on the individual level and look at their life, like, this person really lived the quest. Jack Parsons is another sure. one of those. He lived a magician's lifestyle <laughs> in the 1940s. And it also, in, in to relate it to our modern condition, this is in some ways how you get taken in by a charismatic person. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm looking at her. I'm like, yeah, I, I would go to one of her smart parties. I'd talk to the baboon and watch her duplicate rings and do recitations of obscure literature. Why not? But would you go to India with her? I can see why Alcott might have been on the fence about that one. <laughs> Even with RBH giving me a letter being like, yeah, go to India, be a sort of official representative of the U.S. government. Why not? And this is British colonial India at mm -hmm. this time, right? So this is occupied, fully occupied, aggressively by British Empire, more or less at the height of its power. Oh, they're landing in the Raj, baby. So they're they're going to be rubbing elbows with royalty mm -hmm. the the further you look into this the more perplexing it is this is like mc escher i'll see you next week <laughs> i'm fully baffled well thanks for opening this can of worms 